What's happening, bingers? It's another hump day and another totally bingeable podcast. She's the host of CounterClock, and she's here today to tell you all about Season 3, which we'll be releasing in its entirety, all 20 episodes, tomorrow morning. She's taking the true crime podcast world by storm. Please welcome Delia D'Ambra. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Is this the same place? So I I had you, Delia, on uh, season nine of Truth and Justice, where we talked about the first two seasons of Counterclock. Right. And uh, now you're back for True Crime Binge. I don't remember. Is this the same setting you were in? Because it looks very dark and mysterious where, yeah. wherever you're sitting. <laughs> so this is like this is my actual studio. So we transformed. Uh, we have like two fairly large closets in our house. And this one we like soundproofed. So this is all like soundproofed and this is like my my home studio. So now it's all set up. I've got like lighting in here and like banners for all the shows. So yeah, it's it's legit. <laughs> for me. So so you went from I mean most people like start in a closet and then and then move on to like a studio at some yeah. point. But you've like embraced the closet and made a closet studio. Yes. It's like because it's like the size of a small room and it's just me, right? Cuz I'm remote for audio chuck. So it works like perfect for me just to voice and do stuff in. And I have like my string board and stuff for all my cases. And nice yeah, you have a murder board. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I just did it um, like a week and a half ago and it took me like three hours because season three is that big. So yeah, it's, this is, this is my little space because anywhere else in the house, I can't let it spill over. <laughs> <laughs> I I have. I have the same thing out in my office. In my old office, I had a little bitty bulletin board, yeah. cork board, and then and now my new office is bigger, so I have like an eight foot, and that's my favorite thing to do at the beginning of every season is to put together. And people think like it's just on TV, but it actually helps. I mean, does it help you having all the visual of the case up on the board like that? Yeah, I think it really does. Um, for for all of the seasons of Counterclock, I think if you go back to season one, we, we had a lot of people with Dawn, Donnie. Uh, with two Donnie, like, so pick people's photographs coinciding with, you know, timelines and relevance to a case. That's, that's really important. And sometimes I'll even put references of documents and paperwork that coincide with that person. Cause that just helps me for accuracy, right? I want to make sure everything is being attributed to the right person. So I think for me, it's a combination of all those things, like, and not just to have this like wild looking thing, but. <laughs> right. But the wild looking thing is cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, when people see it, they're like, well, what have you been doing? <laughs> what are you doing in your closet? <laughs> yeah, my husband's thought, and he's like, wow. <laughs> All right. Speaking of closet, I'm, I'm just curious, what, what am I seeing behind your head? Because it looks like it might be folded up clothes on a shelf. Yeah, so this is like... Um, Crime Junkie merch and like all that's like Crime Junkie merch, Counterclock merch. These are some props for Park Predators season two um, and then like Park Predators banners and stuff. So there's like 
up there too is uh, the first news article for Denise Johnson's case that was published after like 15 years of silence, you know? Oh, that's awesome. So I kind of keep all of that stuff in here as like a reminder. And it's like work stuff. See, I thought you just had like extra, like you've spilled no. out of your other closet and have extra Everything clothes. Everything in here is audio <laughs> chuck or counterclock or some show derivative there. <laughs> so. Right. so tell me about, because we didn't talk about this much last time, but tell me about the other shows you've done, because we talked about specifically counterclock, but that's not your first venture into true crime podcasting. Like what, what else have you done in the space? Yeah, so Counterclock was certainly the first, um, but then when I started to, you know, be more with Audio Chuck full time, I started pitching other show ideas because I realized that there wasn't anything out there on it. So Park Predators is a show that I host, um, write and produce, which is, um, you know, serialized in a sense. It's it's a couple of dozen or more. Uh, cases and each episode is a different homicide that occurred in a national park or state parkland um, or recreation space. And so each episode's different on a different, you know, time, decade, but they all have that one common element, you know, together. So that one I think is, is really interesting because there wasn't anything else out there like that. There's, there's the true crime space, but there's this element of, what is happening in national parks and recreation spaces where right. people are committing these horrible crimes and it's like they're using nature, they're using the environment, they're using their predatory, you know, psychology to, you know, mar this beautiful space. So that was that was something that kind of just really took off last summer and we have a second season coming out. So so, so that one that one has me nervous because I, I need to check out some of these episodes because I do a lot of camping out west. In May, I'm going to me Montana <laughs> for a for a week long backpacking trip. And uh, if you just out of curiosity, has anybody ever been murdered in the Flathead National Forest that you're aware of? Not that I've looked at for the show, but again, there's like so many of these cases. So maybe do some research before you go. <laughs> well, if you, yeah, well, I, I think maybe, maybe if you do some research, look for in the Missoula area, yeah. the Flathead, and then just let me know. You have my number, what to watch out for when I'm up there in May. Yeah. Park Predators is, is a really unique, it's a unique concept. But um, these stories are the same. You and I know that murder has, you know, um, no criteria, right? I mean, there's just it it just exists. And so that's really what's cool about that show. Um, I'm obviously a big outdoors person. Me and my husband are. We got married in a national park. So these are things that in my life, I realized this is very interesting. Like there's something specific within the true crime genre about this type of location where homicides are taking place. And the manner in which they're taking place. So that's a show. And then I also host and produce Dark Arenas, which is a new series from Audio Check. It came out on Stitcher Premium at the beginning of this year. It was a nine-part series. And those episodes are really cool because each episode is a one-on-one -on -one interview between me and someone who works in a really, really dark uh, profession that most of society doesn't know the true depth of what they do and why what they do is integral to, you know, protecting society or the betterment of society. So I was able to get, you know, agents from the ATF, FBI, um, former director of the CIA, it, people who, you know, their professions are incredibly dark, but just the ability to tell about what they do and get them to tell me their stories was, it was pretty cool. So I think a lot of people really enjoyed that one. And that one has a future too. So 
another season, I guess you could say. So, and that one lives on Stitcher Premium. Is that the yep, only place that one's on Stitcher one? Premium? Yeah, um, it's pretty cool. It's they're all very unique. Like all of the episodes are very unique. So, um, I think people really liked that, which was cool. God, so you're just all over the space. Is is that it? Just those two and three seasons of Counterclock? Is there anything else you're mixed up in? Um, well, I'm I'm helping with all you know all that i can with audio check shows you know future shows and you know when i'm needed on crime junkie i'll i'll you know pitch in and ride or i'll pitch in and um help produce a, a cool concept for an episode or something like that but that's removed from my work because i have to pour so much of my time into <laughs> into counterclock and the other shows so yeah it's a little bit of everything but i like it i think that's why we do this right <laughs> right. Yeah, it's 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 amazing that you've they've got that far like into it. Cuz can you talk a little bit about your background and where you started and then landed as as like the the true crime queen now <laughs> mixed up in all of these audio chuck productions? Yeah, so I think starting my career as a journalist um in television broadcast news, I started in 2014 um and 2014, 2015, 2016, all those years, I was really kind of married to TV broadcast news. It was what I went to school for and what I wanted to do. But over those years, I realized that, you know, journalism is so much bigger and the podcasting space, particularly true crime, was really ramping up where we were seeing a lot of people uh, listening to good stories and the ability to tell good stories in podcasting. And so as I kind of went that direction, I think just getting out of TV broadcast news was like the the track I needed to take to tell uh, longer stories, to tell um, more, I, I would say to some aspects, some more important stories. And so, yeah, in 2018, I said, let me make Counterclock. And it's just kind of gone from there. And then Ashley Flowers and I uh, connected um, not long, maybe a year after the first season of Counterclock came out and then we remastered it. So, yeah, I think just my background in journalism and my background in wanting to tell stories and being on the ground, being a field reporter, just those skills, the ability to interview, the ability to write and to know what a story is just all kind of helped me. And now I'm able to do all that through podcasting. And I mean, true crime is it's unfortunately never ending. So there's always stories um, to be told and particularly stories that in mainstream media have not been told. And podcasting is such a good format for that. So that's that's kind of how I have done it and brought my background into it to do what I do now. It's such a great mix. It's a it's a great medium for someone with a mind like yours that is has a journalistic background, but also obviously from listening to your work, you have a lot of creativity and writing and the um, the scripting and the production of these episodes. Like you just don't have the in in mainstream media, even in you know, like I've worked in in the TV space some some too. It's like you just don't have. You don't have the space. You have so many more limitations on the story that you can tell. You know, when we when we made the Forgotten West Memphis Three on Oxygen, it was like I, I had you know I was a producer on the show and like had this. This is where I want the story to go. And yeah, even vision. with all the interviews, and they're like, but we have this many acts and this many episodes and this many hours, and this is how we don't have room for that. We don't have room for this. But in the and it's like there's just a never ending amount of space in the podcasting world. Yeah, and I think I think it's really important because there's something about podcasting, and I think you know this too, where you can take the listener there. You can take them on the ground with you. And I think TV and, and even print in some ways tries to get into that, but nothing beats being there and telling the story from the town and the listener feeling like they're there with you. And I think that's what's gotten so popular with 
shows like mine and Up and Vanished and Serial and, and things like that because you're you're sort of the listeners married to the host journey. And you just don't get that in a lot of other places, either for time's sake or creativity's sake. And so that's why I think it's it's so important because these stories really can get justice when you tell it that way. And not to mention people enjoy listening to that more so than just a linear, here's 20 minutes of me talking, you know? <laughs> well, and it's so much easier creatively, I think, in an audio space to do so. Like, like you can't beat David Ridgen you know, just holding a microphone by his feet as he's walking through the woods, talking to somebody, you know, that just that, the ambience that he can put into the, you know, that you can put into a production like that, that takes you there. You can't really do with TV because you've got, yeah. in order to do that, you've got two guys with huge cameras following you and <laughs> yeah. you just can't get the, or, the organic feel that you get with just, you know, a, a podcaster with a microphone. Yeah, for sure. So you've done some awesome work. I was, I was super excited when I talked to you uh, uh, last year during, during your season two of Counterclock. Yeah, and and now with season three, you guys you guys sent me a preview. I got to I got a little sneak peek of the first couple episodes uh, that that all the rest of the listeners haven't haven't found. But you're doing something, you're you're doing something pretty unique with this season that you've never done before, and it all starts tomorrow. Can you can you explain the first of all the you know, what you're doing with with Counterclock season three that you haven't done in the previous seasons? Yeah, so it's twenty episodes. And that's a lot, but the story's a lot. And we're doing it as a binge. So all 20 episodes will be dropped on the same day for people to just just go through and binge. And the reason that Ashley and I came to this consensus, we, we literally looked at each other after I was, you know, halfway through the investigation. And I was like, I don't know, this, if this goes week to week, there's so much and it's it's so complicated. And there's two different states. There's decades of time. So we said we got to binge it because I think it's important for the listener to listen to the story and my investigation all the way through, whether that be over a couple of days or weeks or, or whatever their schedule allows. But we didn't want that break of, okay, now I'm waiting another seven days, another seven days, because you probably know from listening to Counterclock or any other series similar that you kind of maybe forget things or people's relevance. And a lot of people tell me, I'll go back and listen to the episode before because I want to make sure I have all of my facts straight. And so I didn't want that to occur with season three because of the nature of the story. So the binge drop, I think, is is very calculated on our part uh, because of the type of story that season three is. So I hope that people, you know, will appreciate that. I think when people listen, they will understand it entirely, why it, why it's that way probably from like listening to the first two episodes, they're going to be like, okay, let me get my string board <laughs> and my post-it notes. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I think this weekend, you guys are going to break the internet uh, with <laughs> all of your listeners binging through all 20 episodes at once. Like, I love the idea. I'm kind of jealous because I don't have the production time with Truth and Justice to, <laughs> I'd love to do that, but just the way our scheduling works, we're just week, 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 yeah. week, week by week. And then I and I deal with a lot of the struggles you're talking about, especially the case we're working on right now for season ten. Is you know it's, it's a very complex case, and so from week to week, it's like we get our follow up questions from listeners for our like addendum episode. Yeah, and every week it's like people are asking questions like, "Are you not listening?" Because you know it's 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 all over my brain because I'm I'm staring at yeah. it all day, but it's just like it's gone because it was a week ago. But but yeah, I I predict 
that that the internet, Twitter, and Instagram and Facebook are going to be blown up with people going crazy. I, I knew it was a binge. I didn't know it was twenty episodes. Yep. That's a that's like a true crime binger's dream to have twenty episodes to consume all at once. And each episode is, um, you know, typically counterclocks were like 30 to 40 minutes. Each episode is anywhere from like 20 to 30 minutes. So they're a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. But again, that's just because of the content and the way the story is. But, you know, I wrote the whole series in a matter of like two months. Again, two months post majority of my investigation. There's some things still in the works, but I sat down and, and the way you hear it is the way I wrote it because it's. It's just, it is what it is in terms of what I found out, when I found out, what I was uncovering. So in that sense, it was, I don't want to say easy to write, but that's the way I wrote it. So I feel like that's the way it has to be heard. So that's what's important to me is that people like retain and really understand some of the unbelievable moments that are in it because that's unbelievable to me when I found it out. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Now, I'm wondering as well, I guess because you've already written them all, because I'm wondering for me, like, I always have a plan at the beginning of every season, and then I get derailed like two weeks in because, you know, something that we find or something that a listener notices or something and it sends us off in a different direction. Do you expect it all to have any, like, as people start binging, wishing you'd gone a different direction, or, you're, or, or is it more of, well, I. I know it just just stay on for the ride and you'll get there when we get to the end. Yes, yeah, so it's definitely like stay on for the ride because some of the things you may think or have suspicions of in the beginning couple of episodes, I'm going to get to that, trust me, because it really is a story that offshoots in a couple of different directions and I was able to get through a lot of those offshoots. Again, some that dead end, some that just are you got to keep going, some that are still going. So I get to a lot of that. So I definitely tell people, hang on for the ride. But at the same time, um, I hope that people, as they listen, they do write in and they do. There are some people I'm still wanting to hear from. And I think that that will be triggered by the release in a binge format. So again, not only is it strategic on the, the, the company's part and because of the story, but it's strategic on my part as an investigator because I'm hoping that it triggers people to come forward and to engage with me who have engaged with me off the record or, or whatever. So it's it's definitely um, been calculated uh, to hopefully have that happen. And I don't it, it won't change the content that exists, but I think we have a high potential of adding additional content. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you. So is there is there a plan or at least an openness to with what you because it's you writing the story but this is also kind of a, a crowdsourced investigation you're looking for help right from people yeah. listening so is there a plan or an openness to you know when it concludes when new information comes in then to continue the season on from there i would hope that i would have some additional content for some leads um that i have pretty well vetted but you know it's just a couple things here and there we we do plan on releasing like we have at the end of all the seasons of Counterclock, a Q&A discussion between me and Ashley for some things that we weren't able to kind of like fit into episodes some other theories and, and things like that. But I will say that season three, from listening to the trailer and, and knowing what you know, there is active court litigation and, and proceedings occurring with 
individuals in season three. And so as that carries out in real time, do I think I'll follow it uh, to a T, like a trial or something like that? No, because they're post-conviction type proceedings, which just aren't of that nature. But I, I could see, I could foresee in the Q&A episode addressing some of those things that I think are really important, but we kind of just have to wait for some of those to flesh out. So it's got a little bit of like, everything's ready to go. And we're still not quite there yet on some of this stuff. So that's what I hope people uh, take away from it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very exciting. I can't wait till tomorrow when it drops when I can hear the rest of it. Um, and, and so now I, I want to move into a little bit of, of the case and I'll, I'll let you again, let you guide people as far as what you want them to know before the, the season launches. I will say that as soon as I started listening to the first five minutes of episode one, I was super excited and interested because I live 45 minutes from where this happened and I remember it happening. I mean, I was a kid, I was like 10 years old, but yeah. it was something that was talked about for a long time. Yeah. So you've listened to, so tell me what you have listened to. I, I, you guys, uh, you guys sent me episode one and two and I've okay. listened to one and I'm about three quarters of the way through two right before we had to start recording here. Of season three. Yeah. Of season three. So, so episode one was like kind of the background stuff. Yeah. And we're just getting into the nitty gritty in, uh, in episode two where I'm Yeah. At. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone will know from hearing the trailer, the, the Pelly murders in, in Lakeville, Indiana are, Huge. They were huge when they occurred in 1989, and they're huge even in the memories of people like yourself who know it today. So this case is big because of the number of victims, because of the type of community it occurred in, the time it occurred, the size of the area it occurred in. So there's all these interesting factors, but I think what is so important for people to know as they listen to the series is that this family, the victims, they have so many um, connections to so many places and so many things. And that's what I explore in this series. And I think anyone who has followed up on the Pelly case knows that eventually Jeff Pelly, uh, who was a teenager in 1989, is, uh, you know, um, looked at as a suspect. And, and that story is told years in the future from 1989. But all of the things that occurred in between and really looking into each of these victims and the backstories is what I have dedicated so much time to. And not only that, the initial investigation, which you're just starting to get into in the episodes that you've heard. So, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, you were a kid and there were a lot of people who were kids or teenagers or young adults in 1989. So it it's just infamous. And I think it has this this national attention that it got. And a lot of people, unless you know about it now, you're kind of go, wait, what was that? But it definitely has a big footprint in the true crime space. But I just don't think anyone knows how big that footprint actually is until they listen to season three. Yeah, I, I haven't heard anything. And maybe it's out there. Are, are there any like documentaries or anything like that? or other podcasts about this crime? Because like I said, I know the case peripherally. Yeah. But I've never like, I've never found anywhere I could listen to or watch anything on it. Yeah. So, I mean, over the years, again, as this story has played out over the decades, um, there's been coverage on, you know, TV programs, network TV programs, you know, the one two hour specials or whatever that is. But that's that's the case for a lot of true crime content. The only thing that I found that was a um, 
a, what one could consider a deep dive. There was a book called The Prom Night Murders by Carlton Smith, who's since passed away. That was released in 2008. I did not read that book until I initiated my own investigation. But that one, you could say, has a more in-depth look than any other publication that's been out there. But again, that's print. So it's not the same medium that, that we're in. But I will say that that's out there. That's probably the most like focused thing on, on the Pelly case. There's a couple of one-off podcasts that have like picked it up as their weekly episode and told the 20, 30-minute story. But nobody has ever looked into the facts of this case. I mean, in any long form, in any in-depth process. And so, no, that that sort of making a murderer type vibe has never been uh, dedicated to this particular case. So I just think that's what made it so interesting for me as I was investigating and I'm going, all of what people thought is just not what it is. It's just not what it is. And so the facts are so interesting. The characters are so interesting. And again, um, the fact that it goes beyond the state of Indiana is something that I think a lot of people have no idea about, and they're about to find a lot out. <laughs> but it is it is actually so much more tied to another state than even where the crime occurred in Indiana. And I think any program or anything you were to see on that barely would mention it, if not mention it at all. And it's such a huge part of this story, which was what was so surprising to me. And I think will surprise a lot of listeners too. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. You know, we knew about it as, as the you know the Parsonage murders, the Pelly murders, or I've heard it called the Prom Night yep. murders. Can you break down a little bit, whatever you're comfortable with, as far as just kind of basic, you know, what the crime was, just to give people an idea of what they're in store for? Yeah, and I if people too, if they want like a quick snapshot before the the series releases, um, in the binge, Crime Junkie actually is doing a traditional crime junkie episode on the the Pelly case um and it, it's on the crime junkie feed from this past monday so people can can listen to that and get that kind of quick snapshot of like what coverage has been out there on it but basically the the crime itself is in late april of 1989 um april 29th of 1989 somebody shot to death with a shotgun uh bob pelly who was a pastor at Olive Branch United Brethren Church in Lakeville, shot his second wife, Dawn, and shot the two youngest stepdaughters, um, which would have been Dawn's two daughters from a previous marriage um, and stepdaughters of Bob. So you have this pastor, his wife, and these two little girls just brutally murdered um, within the parsonage, which is in a very small rural street in Lakeville, Indiana, which is like a very small rural town in Indiana right next to the church. And, you know, nobody saw or heard anything. And the police did their investigation. Um, there's quite a few problems with that um, investigation. And that's something I look at in the season itself. And everyone's wondering, like, you know, who did this? And, and pretty quickly, law enforcement zeroed in on the 17-year-old son, which was Jeff Pelly, who was Bob's biological son. And Bob had a biological daughter, Jackie. Well, Jeff was not in the home at the time of the crime, you know, initial inv information stated. And then Jackie was away. And then a third stepdaughter, uh, Jessica Pelly, who was Dawn's other daughter from previous marriage, she wasn't in the home either. But quickly, police said, it's got to be the teenage son. His dad banned him from going to prom. He wasn't allowed to drive his car. He killed the family on Saturday, 
and then took off to prom and then was gone all weekend. And so that's really been the kind of snapshot narrative of of what occurred. But, you know, the investigation, the way they look at the evidence, it obviously points a lot towards Jeff and but they never make an arrest. And so 13 years goes by. And in 2006, Jeff Pelly is ultimately convicted. He was arrested a few years before that and was convicted. So Jeff Pelly, if you Google it now, Jeff Pelly is in prison for for quadruple murder from 1989. But again, all of the stuff that happened in those years between all of the history of everyone involved is just super interesting. And and the, the law enforcement investigation that occurred in 1989 and the subsequent one that was reopened in 2002, which led to Jeff's ultimate um, conviction in 2006. There's just so much going on that is like, what? Like, none of this, none of this makes sense. Some of this does make sense. So there's just so many questions to be asked. And that's what the series is really looking at. And it's it's definitely really interesting. So I'm excited for people to hear. <laughs> yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear because, you know, just that fact that, you know, my hackles, you know, as someone who investigates wrongful convictions, when you see somebody who's, you know, arrested for a crime 13 years later, mm-hmm. is, uh, immediately your hackles start going up like, what happened? What, what, you know, unless there's been like some new advancement and, you know, DNA or something that 100% pin somebody to, to a crime like that. Or somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then, then it's, it's like there, something's got to be squirrely in that investigation to get there. 13 years later, our season seven case was like that, where somebody yeah. was arrested. Jamie Snow was was picked up like nine years after a murder occurred with no evidence. It's just. Yeah. And I think with this case, I did not go into this case like Counterclock season two. I, I'm not necessarily approaching this case from not that I did with season two either, but it was just so apparent from the start that Clifton Spencer had no involvement in Stacey Stanton's death. But um, with the with the Pelly case, because of time, because of various circumstances, uh, you, I kind of didn't come at it as the approach of okay, this I feel is a, a wrongful conviction. The facts that I found are just interesting on both sides of it, and so that's what I want listeners to really listen to: is here's what you can believe one thing, and here's what you can believe that's the other, and here's everything you didn't know in between. That gives you the adequate information to make that decision. So, and that should be the case in any wrongful conviction type, you know, approach. But with this one, I really had to just get so far into the facts and background. And some people may leave with that idea and some people may not. It really just depends on what you're willing to listen to and what you're willing to uh, believe about the criminal justice system and believe about some of the individuals who, who spoke with me for this series. So you really leave it open for the listener to make a to make their own determination after hearing all the facts. Yeah, I think you cannot look at this case and really make up your mind without, you know, compromise unless you hear everything and no one's ever told the full story. And so that's why I think it's important that I I leave that to the listener because otherwise they may make up their mind, but I guarantee you they're going to go, "Well, I'm not convinced 100%." But I think in this presentation, they're going to be convinced 100% one way or the other. I don't think there's going to be a lot of room for ambiguity. That sounds great. How, how did you how did you land on this case? I well, AudioChuck is based in Indiana, and the case was presented to me from a former law student at Indiana University, 
and I had zero knowledge or background, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized that the characters and the background and the story actually had a tremendous amount of connection to um, where I live and where I work and where I know really well. And so that was incredibly intriguing to me because I realized that I can do a lot to gather information because of that factor. So yeah, I think it was just a mixture of it being sent my way and realizing that, oh my goodness, I think I can get a lot on this (laughs) because of, you know, where I am, where the case took place. And yeah, so I think it was just kind of that. I uh, I always have a lot of cases come my way, but this one was good. And it was also good in the sense that I was able to access a tremendous amount of public documents. And I had a lot of cooperation to get some of that stuff. So that's obviously a draw for me uh, as an investigator. Had you heard of the case before it was pitched to you? Had you had any knowledge of it at all? No knowledge of it. Sometimes that's the best because you can just start all the way. No preconceived notions can start all the way back from the beginning. No preconceived notions. I just day one um, just started the process that I start with every story that I look into for counterclock. And I mean, I was I was immediately interested within just a few hours of my initial dig. And I knew that it was it was going to be the third season. It had to have been the third season. So. So one one thing that just occurred to me. You said it was about this time last year when the case got brought to you and then you developed this whole story over the last year, which means uh, that you created this entire 20 episode podcast that includes a lot of interviews Yeah, through a pandemic. Yeah. So what was that process like trying to, trying to do all of this when, I mean, in a lot of cases, the a lot of the world has been shut down. Yeah. And in my experience being in the field during this, trying to interview people is people are really reluctant to get, to let people like into their homes and talk to them right now. Yeah. So one, I was, I was very cautious going into it because I knew that that would be a factor. Thankfully, all of the interviews, I think with the exception of one are all in person. And I think I've got anywhere. I think I probably have about 20 interviews, to be honest with you. I mean, as soon as I started approaching people and finding people, it was like the floodgates opened. It was like some of these people were just waiting. I mean, I'm talking about people who who could have, should have testified in court, who were never tapped, and they have been waiting to, you know, talk about this and what they heard and saw. And so I think with that, I, I you know, being cautious and making sure, you know, I was getting tested and making sure that if I was going to meet someone, I was good and kind of abiding by all the protocols and stuff. But I think people were willing to because when you're faced with this, we don't know what's going to happen in the world. I could I could get COVID-19 and and be in the hospital for weeks and, you know, have this threat of this looming what's going to happen to me in my future. Sometimes that incentivizes people to talk and get stuff off their chest and cooperate. So it kind of was this weird uh, effect that occurred where people were like, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll talk to you because I think everybody had this thought of what if I get sick and then I can't Oh, sure, yeah. It's kind of dark, but it It is practically dark. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so um and a lot of the the kind of pre-interviewing, pre-vetting, I you know, a lot of sources I spoke with on the phone, you know, establishing that trust and relationship and then over a period of several trips back and forth to Indiana and and other places, 
you know, it, it, it was able to work out and I went into people's homes and other places, but all in a, in a safe manner. And, you know, I think that was the important thing is you can still do this work and stay safe. But on the other side of that too, I mean, some of the people that um, knew these victims or are still looking for answers, like those people are going to talk no matter what, you know, they are desperate for help and answers. And anytime they can, you know, beat that drum, they're going to do it. And I, I find that, you know, kind of amazing that even in the midst of a pandemic, you know, people who are seeking justice, they don't care. They don't care about anything. They just want somebody to care about their loved one. Um, and so I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, it, it was certainly challenging, you know, with the flying and the, you know, traveling aspect of it. But once I got all of those elements together, I think I knew, like, I got to put this story together. I mean, there wasn't a rush, but for me, I just, as I'm learning things, I've got to get it down because if not, I won't do it justice. So, yeah, pandemic was not ideal, but I did it. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's impressive because, I mean, I've made three, I think, trips for the case I'm doing now. And I, I even bought a new microphone because I, I, I yeah. have, like, lapel mics and I like bought a shotgun mic and had to learn how to use it so New that I could step. do interviews from six feet away without getting close <laughs> to people. Because a lot of times I'm not, I'm like knocking on doors. Like there is no pre-interview. I'm like, Hey, I'm here to ask you about this murder. Um, so Did it's already tricky to get people to talk. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was a little bit of that. There was a few times where, you know, when I was on the ground, I learned something and the next day I was, I was knocking on the door, but, um, you know, everybody kind of had their own approach to their own safety and, and protection. And I was willing to work with people on that. And I think I think it ultimately it led to what I think is a great, great show and great content. But, you know, pandemic or no pandemic, I had to tell this story. So that's great. And from what I've heard so far, it is it's fantastic. The production is great. The, the sound design is awesome. The story is it already as soon as I mean in the first few minutes as soon as I heard what the case was I was like no shit the Pelly case because <laughs> I was, like I remember this yeah so I'm super excited to hear the rest of it is there is there going to be a counterclock season four is it already in the works or what other product productions do you have coming up uh yeah so um counterclock season four is uh it's it's happening. It's happening. <laughs> um, I am currently working on I Like I said, I usually work a year out um, in investigations. Um, so that's happening. And then Park Predators season two, that's going to release right on the heels of, of Counterclock season three. It's 15 episodes. It's going to run the entire summer. So it'll go from right after Memorial Day weekend all the way into, I believe, late August. So uh, that will be, you know, one episode a week. That one is... Uh, done writing that one and it's in post-production so i know a lot of people are really excited about that uh particularly the outdoors community which i find kind of ironic but <laughs> yeah, i don't know how i haven't found that one yet but i'm going to find it immediately when we get off our zoom call here <laughs> yeah because i'm out in those parks all the time yeah so and that one's coming out and um you know audio chuck we've i'm working on a, a bunch of new shows for them this year and uh they're all very unique, very different. Some of them are my brainchild. Some of them are, you know, collaborative uh, efforts. So, yeah, just a lot of stuff in the works. And I, I think that's just, um, you know, a testament to what we're doing, right? We're just trying to get those stories out there and advocate for, for what we can. Um, just the more you can put in front of an audience, maybe just one person will hear something and, you know, <laughs> decide to do the right yeah, thing. You never know. So. It happens. It happens all the time. Yeah, for sure. So. 
But I'm I'm really looking forward to season three's release because it has been what feels like a long time in the making. And like you said, it's a story that um, a lot of people think they know about, but they don't really know about. And that's what I hope that they take away from from its release. Well, I can't I plan to probably binge the entire thing this coming weekend when it drops. The trailer for you true crime bingers is out now. Her name is Delia D'Ambra. The podcast is Counterclock and season three, all 20 episodes of it drop tomorrow morning. Check it out. I'm sure it's going to be your next true crime binge. Delia, thanks for joining me again. Thank you. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.